Hi, I'm Gary, and this is EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at fear, uncertainty, and doubt when it comes to climate change in discussion with a proper mechanical engineer. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free-to-download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Before we start, I wanted to apologise for a small technical hitch in episode 147, the 80% episode. The recording didn't include the favourite part at the end that those who listened past the boilerplate credits look forward to, so I do apologise for that. The responsible person has been taken out and slapped hard with a pickled herring. Our main topic of discussion today is FUD. Now, we've covered FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt, as a concept many times before on this podcast. Our very first episode almost four years ago was about myths and legends in the EV world. A lot of the myths that come around regarding EVs are a result of FUD from people trying to stop the advance of this technology. How many times have you heard the old one about batteries lasting three years, then needing to be replaced at great cost, for example? But this week, we're going a little more macro than that. We're looking at global FUD when it comes to climate change. A lot of this comes on the heels of a trio of programmes put out by the BBC on big oil and its role in the climate change debate. The three episodes were called Denial, Doubt and Delay. If you have a few hours spare over a couple of nights, please sit and watch them. Links are in the show notes. But there is a different side to this sort of obfuscation. Gold star for using today's word of the day there, Gary. It has had a knock-on effect with a generation of people working in that industry. I refer to a thread from a Twitter user called Tom Swafield Bray. Back in 2007, he did a pre-university year in industry at Shell's research centre near Ellesmere Port. He worked in one of the diesel fuel research teams as an intern, mainly on working out how to communicate development in fuel technology. He was asked about whether he was concerned ethically about working for Shell. After watching the BBC programmes mentioned earlier, he's had to sit and think. As per his words, uh, well, never mind what he wrote. Let's speak to the man himself. Welcome, Tom. Could you start by telling people what it is you do? Yeah. So, hi, Gary. Nice to be on the show. Um, yeah, I'm a mechanical engineer working for a local authority in the northeast, trying to reduce emissions in my county um, and respond to the climate emergency. So I work on a range of projects, um, including installing heat pumps at council buildings, installing solar panels where, wherever we can and building strategy for decarbonisation more broadly, whether that's of our built environment or of our council fleet. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my role. Um, somewhere between the passion I have for the climate emergency and my te- te- technical expertise coming together. So yeah, it's a good job. Sort of roll that back and give me your sort of your origin story very quickly. I know you, I don't believe you've got an electric vehicle yourself, but you do use pool cars that are electric and you classify yourself, as you said there, as something of an environmentalist what what got you into this whole renewable sector what's your, what's your origin story yeah good question so i mean i studied mechanical engineering at university partly because i loved formula one and i loved planes and i thought that's that was my future and very quickly after kind of starting at university i came to the conclusion that those two things weren't necessarily appropriate for this this kind of climate change story that we had fit, uh, kind of in the background and 
actually started working for an engineering consultancy called Arup when I graduated and, and increasingly was working on low carbon building design because that's what our clients wanted really. So with some kind of training and some and some focus on that, I started to move my every day into how do we reduce emissions? How do we meet building regulations so that buildings are, uh, can be built and how do we uh, respond to that? So I think that that's kind of my story was, was, was yeah, from a place of loving cars and loving fast things to acknowledging actually as an engineer, I could do something different. And really, so the last three years working for, for the local authority, I've, I've very much taken a step of, of my career as well as a passion to say, yeah, what, what is it that we can do from a technical point of view to build a low carbon economy rather, rather than just design things or think about think about things, but what, what are the, the practical steps that we can take? Now, I believe uh, back in the day you started interning or you had an internship at uh, our good friends at Shell Oil. Tell me That's about right, the yeah. um, tell me about the revelation you had there referring to career paths for engineers working in that sector. Well, a- absolutely. So, yeah, as an 18-year-old, I took the opportunity to, to through the Engineering Development Trust to have a year in industry with a engineering company and a company called Shell uh, had their research centre near, fairly close to where I lived, so about an hour away. So I, I lived in digs nearby. And actually, when someone like Shell comes along at, at, as an 18-year-old, you think, wow, this is my career has started off so well. This is such an, an amazing opportunity. And um, I had a friend who actually, when I told him about it, asked me if I was okay ethically working for Shell. And I had no idea what it meant. I, I was just so excited about their link to Ferrari and their uh, the scale of their industry. And actually, my granddad worked at the refinery that was next door to a search centre. So so it all kind of added up. And, and actually, for that year, whilst I was there, I, I worked with some extraordinary engineers, some really passionate experts, some re- really, really good, good people who were working really hard to make shell fuel better, whether that's cheaper to make or more efficient in vehicles or cleaner in vehicles or cleaner to burn, all that kind of thing. And there wasn't really a discussion that I had around or I was part of around climate change in that role. I was there for, I was there for a year, but the, the discussion was more around this stuff might run out one day. What's the future of our business model? So it's, it, I think it was quite interesting there that, yeah, I guess kind of nationally or globally, we weren't talking about climate change as, a, as an issue, uh, 2007, 2008, but we were we were probably all a bit conscious that there's a limited resource that we we might need to move away from one day. But for me, it was uh, maybe I was naive, I was definitely naive, but I, it was just a ex- really exciting place to work and a lot of happy memories working there. A really, really impressive place, really. Now, you mentioned ethics there. The thing I've often wondered when thinking about people who work in the oil and gas sector, uh, more so nowadays than back when you did your internship, is do they understand the part they're playing in climate change? Or is there some sort of internal self-justification they're giving so that they for themselves they minimize the bad and they boost the good you know we're providing fuel to poor farmers in africa who would have to cultivate their fields by hand otherwise is there some sort of rationalization going on do you think i don't think that was part of the conversation when i was there probably 15 years ago now i wonder if it is now in terms of engineers working for these big organizations thinking okay what are we going to do here to to, to be better but I don't know if there, it was there was a decision from the scientists and engineers working there that they were that they knew the science and they were going to ignore it, um, or there was some cognitive dif- dissonance in terms of their living was on a line. But we hear some of these kind of stories um, told about the oil and gas industry that Exxon knew, and I think yes, there were scientists in Exxon 
NHL, NBP, and all these organizations that understood the impact of climate change. But for the majority of scientists and engineers working at those organizations, it isn't part of their everyday. So although they're working at the forefront of research for uh, for fuel technology, the, the impact of climate science, I don't think, is necessarily at the, at the forefront of their minds. So so 15 years ago, it definitely wasn't part of the conversation that I, I was part of. I wonder if it is more now. So I, I do have a, a, a friend who works for BP developing hydrogen infrastructure in, in the Teesside region. And that's kind of, yeah, great, fantastic. There might be a role there for oil and gas engineers to to transition to something like hydrogen. But you can imagine that if someone's a, a diesel fuel expert or a petrol gasoline fuel expert, they've built their whole careers on this. This is what they get paid a lot of money to do. It's actually quite difficult to start again, not not knowing as much in, in a completely new new area. So I can really imagine how, how uncertain or how worrying the future might be if we're as a society we're now deciding we need to move away from this industry it's a good point that because i think if we look at some of the jobs that are in the oil and gas industry you've talked about specific ones there ones that are related to uh diesel for example that there isn't a really good career path from there into any of the renewables without some heavy retraining but if you look at some of the other uh jobs for example if we go out to some of the oil rigs i think is there a case there to say that some of the people who are working out on the oil rigs may be able very easily to transition into, say, offshore wind installation. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there's there's definitely some shared talent or experience there working in harsh environments like offshore. I wonder how many of those engineers, for example, working on on, a, on an offshore rig, have really specific oil and gas expertise. So, how many of them are drilling engineers? How many of them? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and I, I kind of. I don't know if you, how much you know about the concept of, of a Green New Deal. I love that idea that actually we want to value these well-paid jobs and we want to build a new future well-paid uh, economy for, for these people. A lot of the industry, in places like Aberdeen or in Teesside or these kind of places that are reliant on these these quite well-paid jobs to to fuel the whole economy, really. How do we make a plan to... to Say say yes, they're, they're they're important jobs, but we've got an option for you in the future. And I think yeah, policies around the Green New Deal are, are a good example of how we we need to take note of that of that just transition and yeah, invest in retraining, invest in in replacing, invest in rehoming um, industries that don't have a future. But yeah, the, you're right. There might there may well be a lot of jobs that are transferable. That I think there will be a, a, a good number of jobs that that just need to end at some point in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Related to that, let's talk about IMECI, the Institute of Mechanical Engineers. Now, you said in a recent vlog that mechanical engineers are responsible for creating the the vast majority of some of the things that are currently causing climate change, oil rig refineries, internal combustion engines, aircraft, etc. But I'm pretty sure we can't pin the blame for this purely at the door of the Institute of Mechanical Engineers. But they obviously have maybe a small level of culpability in a hindsight. So what do you think they're doing to try and position people on a track towards some of the more modern technologies that we're currently dealing with? So absolutely. And so so I'm a chartered engineer through the IMECI and I'm a a chartered environmentalist through the IMECI. And and I think the point I'm making there, which is probably fairly hyperbolic, but but if we look around our industry and society a lot of the, the areas that we we see pollution we see co2 emissions will will at some point have had a mechanical engineer involved in their 
development. So whether that is the oil and gas industry or internal combustion vehicles or transport more generally, the aviation industry, processing of, of, of chemicals, materials, etc. The mechanical engineers make the world go round. I like to joke that civil engineers are boring because they make things stop, but mechanical engineers are exciting because they make things move. But actually, I'm, I'm not convinced the Amakis really understood the role, potential role of mechanical engineers in, 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 in the crisis, whether it's the, these industries that we developed over the last 150, 170 years that have relied on fossil fuels or the opportunity that mechanical engineers have to, to solve the problem. So, um, yeah, we are, we are experts in efficient design. We are experts in potentially experts in low carbon design, whether that's the, the, the machinery of a wind turbine or the machinery of, t- of tidal turbines or actually the thermodynamics of a heat pump. These are things that as engineers, we study and are experts on from, from our university days. So I'd love to see the Amaki leading and setting out a, a path for the transition away from fossil fuel industries. And, and I think, yeah, we've not grasped the scale of the challenge. Um, if you look on the Amaki website, you don't see much about climate. I, I looked this morning and there's there's a web or there's a two day uh, course, a two day seminar costing a thousand pounds on green hydrogen. And that's pretty much the only thing on the front page of the Amaki website that, that has any link to climate change, which is very interesting. And I compare I compare the Amaki to to our colleagues in the civil engineers. So the Institution of Civil Engineering had a, their president a couple of years ago, a, a, an engineer called Rachel Skinner, um, and she did a year of the IC, ICE putting out this putting out this the agenda of shaping zero. It's a challenge to civil engineers to lead on the net zero transition. And I'd really encourage you to go away after after this podcast and, and Google the Shaping Zero and Rachel Skinner and Google that video series because it's really inspiring and challenging for all of us, whether engineers or not, about what the role of engineering might be. And, and I think the IMECI has just been silent in comparison where the opportunity and the skill set that mechanical engineers have to solve this crisis, we just seem to be chatting around the edges as a business opportunity rather than leading the way. For, for a low-carbon future. Talk to me about the concept of Ikigai and how it applies to you specifically. Yeah, I, I, don't, know, I don't know much about Ikigai, but um, uh, it's something I've seen around on the internet for a few years, but it's the, the idea of, of the Venn diagram of, of something that you love, something that someone's willing to pay you for, something that is important for the planet. Um, and what's the final one? Uh, something that your expertise you, you have te- you have expertise in. So if you if you can imagine that Venn diagram in those four circles, right in the middle is this concept of ikigai. So um, something that's meaningful for the planet, something that you can get paid to do, something that you're an expert in, and and something I forgot the fourth one again. Anyway, you get the idea. And so yeah, I'd encourage you to Google that. Uh, it's a Japanese phrase. And I think on my best days in my role, I find myself in that in that position of a meaningful, impactful position that someone's willing to pay me to do that I enjoy. And that I have the expertise to do. I'm really lucky. I think I'm not sure there are many roles that that find that that Venn diagram. The reason I bring it up, obviously, is you're currently working with a local council on a number of uh, projects. One of which I'm aware of, which is the one around solar heating and and battery storage. Uh, now that can't have been a cheap project. I mean, like you, I've I've gone through that. Um, on a personal basis, I put the panels in, I put the battery in, I've got the heat pump in, and uh, you know it, it's not cheap. And I know councils are notoriously shy when it comes to spending money on "quote unquote" new stuff. Talk to me about that and the sort of challenges that you had to overcome, and what role sort of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt 
played in that. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, the project that we're talking about, um, again, if people want to look at it, is the Morrison Busty Low Carbon Depot. So um, it's one of our strategic depots across the county that's home to an awful lot of services uh, in the county. Um, That project was funded partly by the European Regional Development Fund, and the rest is funded by uh, a a capital loan based on an investor save model. So we need to to prove the business case that 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 investment is going to pay back that loan over a number of years. And, that, and that's one of the ways that councils can invest in this stuff is if it's, if we're proving that there'll be a saving to our operational costs, then we can loan um, the capital funding to, to invest. But actually, you're right that local authorities don't have a lot of spare cash and we have a lot of competing priorities. And if we just focused on the climate emergency and the, the competition within that, the competition for funding within that, we, we, we've got a number of challenges, whether it's replacing gas boilers, that tends to be a large capital project that doesn't come with substantial savings at the moment. Um, and to do that, we're reliant on budgets that have dwindled over the last uh, 10, 12 years. Going back to EV musings, I guess, is that we're, we're under pressure from the public to install more charge points with the complexities of electrical supplies, with ongoing maintenance liability, with, with pressure from public to keep charging costs low. And then actually with competition with our neighbouring authorities for central funding pots for a limited amount of money. We're on, under a lot of this pressure, a lot of pressure to do more, to to fund more, to provoke more, to run more campaigns, to change systems more quickly, to make changes quickly, and much of that is costly. Much of it is technically challenging. Much of it is ultimately out of reach for a under-resourced local authority. I'm really lucky to to work with a really committed team of people specifically on the climate emergency in in, in my workplace. But but we're a big local authority that probably has the resource to do that. I don't think many have, but in terms of that, in terms of the funding side of things, we, we've got to be, we, we tend to have to be able to prove that a project is is not going to make things worse first of all, and actually may pay pay for itself over a period of time, and that's actually really difficult to do, whether it's EV charging or or a heating project at the moment. For solar or for other electricity projects, it's not that difficult to do because uh, electricity is very expensive and generating it so that you don't have to buy as much can, can be a really, really good, really quick payback. So I guess that, yeah, that, that, that concept of FUD, so fear, uncertainty and doubt, I've, I sometimes think uncertainty and doubt are similar things. So I want to add in a second day of delay. Some of the conversations we have are, well, this might be cheaper in five years time, or there might be an alternative, cheaper way to do things in five years time or in 10 years time or in 20 years time. We can wait. And as a, activists are taking my day job off hat off and becoming an activist the the reality is that we don't have time to wait that delay or that doubt or that uncertainty that we might have we don't have time to 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 wait for a solution that may or may not come down the line and we have solutions today to reduce emissions across the board that may be costly so yeah declarations of climate emergencies don't come with the caveat as long as it pays for itself it 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 comes with the we need to do this as quickly as possible. So that's one of the kind of bits of uncertainty that I think local authorities have is how do we afford this thing? How do we do it as quickly as possible? But how do we get get what's best value for money for council taxpayers? And that and that's a really difficult challenge um, in the context of competing with a wide variety of budgets on health and social care, on children's services, on leisure facilities and entertainment and all this kind of stuff. So I'm not a leader in my local authority, but I don't, I don't, um, I'm not jealous of, I don't envy uh, the people who've got to make these kind of decisions. 
And it's a painful situation to be in. I did a, an episode uh, last season or the season before about the local councils. And I spent a long, long time trying to get in touch with people to say, come on, talk to me about how you're dealing with, for example, electric vehicle charging. And very, nobody, nobody would come on and actually talk about it. I got referred to a number of websites. Oh, this is our climate strategy, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of councils that have something in place that says, oh, yes, we're committed to doing X, Y, and Z. But they all come up against the barrier that you've just talked about there, which is, well, I've only got a limited pot of money. And if I've got a choice of providing more uh, places for school children or preschool or making the bins uh, emptied on a, a, a good schedule versus putting a couple of charges in a car park for, you know, the twenty-five people in the council in the in the county or in the local area that actually have electric cars. You know which side that they're going to to lean against. But what I did find fascinating is um, you're probably aware of the Orcs. Is it Orcs on off-road charging scheme, uh, which is a central fund from the government, which local councils can pull in to put, as it says, off-road charging for, for vehicles, for electric vehicles. The number of councils who were aware of that and decided they're not going to take any advantage of it. You know, well, we don't necessarily think that electric's the way to go forward. We're waiting for hydrogen or we that doesn't fit into our plan. And it, it was frightening. And a lot of that comes back to a lot of the, the FUD that's around there. This whole thing of, well, yeah, um, is electric the right way? Should we be going for hydrogen? And it's, as you say, it's delaying the whole transition and it's going to cost us, as I say, you pay a lot now or you pay a hell of a lot more in 10 or 15 years time when the impact of not doing the things that you were supposed to be doing now comes home to roost. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Uh, EV charging is really difficult for councils. Um, when charges get put in that someone in the public will complain they're not right, <laughs> whether it's um, they're not priced right or or they're in the wrong place or they're the wrong type of charger. And, and and actually that strategy of do we want to get as many fast chargers as we can in, in car parks or do we want to get much fewer rapid chargers as, as quickly as we can? So it's, it's, it's really tricky. And, and there, yeah, there are government pots and, and there are government pots to for charging and also to decarbonize public sector estates. And I think that the, the complaint I have on that is that these pots, if, if we know there is a challenge in every community to decarbonize buildings and to provide electric vehicle charging, there should be a per capita investment in every community. But instead, we have to compete. So, yeah, the public sector decarbonization scheme, which is the main the main grant funding for buildings, is limited. Um, it is time limited. Um, we have to jump through some significant hoops, whereas actually a long-term strategy that says, because this council has 500,000 people, it will get this much money each year for the next 10 years. It's uh, it, the, the reality is we compete with our neighbours to come up with a better project or a quicker project. or And, and the, there's probably some positive there, but it means that, that strategic planning can't take place and, and that the less well-resourced um, local authorities will not have the time or or officer, officer time or, or the resources to, to bid. And I think that will actually be one of the, the biggest problems is that although the A, council strategy may say, yes, we want to invest in electric vehicles, is do they have the resources as a priority to pay for an officer or a team of officers to to develop these things? And, and the answer is often no, uh, because they've been cut to the bone. I definitely understand what you're saying about, uh, I, I listened to your, your council's episode and I found it really interesting um, uh, that there is funding available. 
um, and not being taken up by certain authorities. But but it's um, it's often actually quite difficult to access that funding and quite time consuming for for the local authority that has competing pro- um, priorities. But it's a good challenge. <laughs> One of the things that also plays into this is, uh, and we've said it before in, with reference to many different things, it's tone from the top. If you get people who are running the authorities, the local authorities, who don't necessarily understand or acknowledge or believe that there is a problem, then they're not going to be pushing forward with the solutions that need to be in place. Uh, I mean, I don't know what your local authority is like, and if you don't want to comment about that, that's fine. But I was at um, the new Oxford Super Hub that was opened a couple of months ago, and the leader of Oxford Council stood up, and she made a fantastic speech about the efforts that they're making in Oxford to decarbonize, to put electric vehicle charging in and all that sort of stuff. So they've obviously got the leadership from the top, which is saying, yes, we understand there are challenges. We understand there's limited funding, but we're going to go for it anyway. And we're going to engage with the government. We're going to engage with uh, private organizations and we're going to get this done. But you may then go to a another authority. And I think if memory serves me from the uh, council episode, Leicester probably was one of those where they've taken an attitude of, well, we don't really care, more or less. We don't have anyone at the top who's pushing for this. And, you know, as a result, they don't have the the charging that they need in place. Uh, they don't have a plan to put it in place. Or if they do, it's a very short term. Oh, we're going to run a pilot. We're going to put four charges in and we're going to run it for 18 months and then we'll see what happens after that. But we don't think we're going to do anything. And I think tone from the top is key. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and actually that, that says says something about our, our political system in many ways. We often will, I think, yeah, the turnout for, for local council elections tends to be quite low. But if we're saying that we could elect someone or elect a group of people that would prioritise this stuff, then actually our local vote could be really impactful. We've definitely had cabinet members who've been champions of this stuff that, that all of a sudden officers priorities changes because you know a cabinet member is going to to complain if it's not done properly and that's what we're working for but then actually within within council leadership again they have multiple priorities and you could argue that yeah wealthy local authorities in the southeast need to 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 lead the way whereas less wealthy local authorities in the midlands um yeah just picking up on oxford and leicester or 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 in less parts of the country all the parts of the country are going to struggle to to and have and have priorities that they need to deal with. So, yeah, I think one one of the things that as a climate activist I say is we need to use our vote well nationally and locally so that we we can lead in this. And I think you're you're spot on. If without local leadership, we don't we don't make the changes that are needed. Moving on, you and I engaged on Twitter recently after you posted a video about your decision to fly abroad despite positioning yourself as trying to be eco friendly. And now you called yourself hypocritical for doing so, but you countered by saying that you paid to offset your flight. Now, on the topic of fear, uncertainty and doubt, there is a lot of FUD around offsetting. And in many instances, it doesn't actually offset anything anyway, especially if you're donating to projects that would have happened regardless of whether you donated money or not. Now, how comfortable were you with your offsetting decision and how did you battle through the FUD that was surrounding that? Yeah, this is a big challenge I have. So have family that live in the States. I have a brother-in-law who is a pilot. So I have some vested interest in in being able to fly slash the future of, of an industry that, that pays for my 
sister and my nephews in many ways, you know, that, that it's, I find it really difficult. Yeah. Before we get out to offsetting, I guess, I guess one of my thoughts on this is that the reality of the emissions in the aviation industry are people flying once a week transatlantic or, or nipping out for a weekend to a certain holiday or whatever it would be. But those of us that, that, really really value those flights maybe once a year maybe once every couple of years I, f- I wonder how guilty we should feel compared to those that are doing more but for me yeah i i i try to i have a subscription to offset my whole life on a, on a monthly basis through a, a organization called ecology and i chose to offset the the emissions of, of these flights by f- trying to find a organization that i trusted which was an organization called climate stewards that were doing good work in in places around the world i think there is a massive risk that we're saying okay i'll plant a tree and that'll do me do the job who's going to maintain that tree who's going to make sure it's healthy who's going to make sure it's not cut down or damaged in development all this kind of stuff it's not as simple as i've emitted a ton and i can pay 20 pounds and that ton will disappear but my challenge to people is is what what we're doing to reduce that ton and what we're doing to emit so so one of my good pals did his PhD in Holland um, and had to travel back for his Viva at the end of his PhD. And he asked me, oh, on KLM, I can offset my flight. Is that a good thing to do? And I said, yeah, that's that's an okay thing to do. But you could actually get the train to Holland. So you could pay for the offset of your, what your flight would have been. And you could get the, the Eurostar to Amsterdam. Why, do, why don't you do that? And I think that's 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 almost an example of we we, we need to be putting money into these schemes that will draw down emissions, but also we need to be making decisions that change the way that we operate on a day-to-day basis. So it's a bit of a both and, um, but offsetting is murky. It's difficult to, to know what's right, but I think more money in tree planting or in renewable energy or in mitigating emissions in another way, in other ways is a positive thing as well, but it's not a get out of jail free card. No, you're right. And I mean, I, I hold my hand up here. If you listen to the podcast, you'll know I've got a huge historic carbon footprint. I used to do anywhere between 100 and 200 flights a year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I look back now and I kind of, you know, I shudder to think about how much uh, carbon I used to put out. And there's no way I'm ever going to be able to offset that without completely bankrupting myself. But having said that, I think as we move forward, there's, and you, you touched upon it then, there's two different aspects that we need to look at. One is... How do we make it so that people can get to where they want without having to fly? And you talked about the Eurostar and things like that. And that brings up the whole issue of we need to make sure that aviation is more expensive than uh, taking the train or the train is less expensive than flying, whichever way you want to look at that, and make sure that the the timetables match up. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I read something recently because France obviously have stopped flights that are internal where you can have a train service that would uh, cover the same distance. And I think there's some discussion about looking at that for a couple of locations in the UK. London, Edinburgh, London, Glasgow, I think, was, yeah, was I, mooted. There's a new service that's just gone up that uh, that will allow you to do that for about the same amount of money. Have you heard about that? Yeah, definitely. So Lumo is the new service in the UK. Um, and I think there's some stats come out recently on this um, in terms of what the impact has been. So stats I read today, and I've just looked them up, says that before the pandemic, the London to Edinburgh route rail had 35% of the traffic, and now it has over 50% of the traffic, London to Edinburgh, because because of the quality of service on the East Coast, because of this new new service, Lumo. And that and that's a, that's a huge shift that 
that is really meaningful. I know, I think I heard stories of, of I think it was KLM actually saying, uh, you bought a ticket with KLM and actually you're right, you don't go to Schiphol Airport, you go to Amsterdam Central Station um, and they take you on the train wherever it would be, which I think is quite interesting as well. Um, but but yeah, that that at the moment our train travel in the UK is so expensive that it makes sense to fly, I don't know, Bristol to Glasgow. But the reality is that that's such a, crazy thing for us to do as a society to, to have that and and challenging people to say that it might actually be more comfortable to travel by the train it might take a little bit longer it might be a bit more expensive but the, there is a you don't buy some overpriced tat in an airport when you're waiting for the for the, for the flight all that kind of stuff um but it's a big challenge uh, that we we definitely need to change as a society as well as making train rail transport e- easier to do yeah. I think the other aspect to that is if we are going to fly, we need to find the least carbon intensive way of doing it. And obviously we've got, for, for the short haul flights, we've got things like um, the Aviation Alice that's come out, just did its maiden flight a couple of weeks ago. That should be hopefully in service within a couple of years. You know, 200, 400 mile range, something like that, that will take up anything up to 40 or 50% of all flights that are taken around the world globally, you can then do zero emissions, which is good. And I think what that means is then if you narrow down the number of flights that are left that actually use aviation fuel, or even if it's sustainable aviation fuel, which I have my thoughts on sustainable aviation fuel, but that's for another podcast. I think if you can then start to cut down the number of flights that are actually taken using stuff that pollutes, it starts to make it a little bit more palatable for us as an organized as a, a society to fly rather than as you say oh you know i've got the house in spain i'm going to go down there three or four times a year and take ryanair or jet 2 or whatever the airlines are there that that are just basically using polluting aircraft so there's got to be some sort of balance between offsetting uh, lowering the emissions and just reducing the actual number of flights that will be kicking out some sort of pollution into the air it's a tricky one i i, I think it's I th- part of the uncertainty thing of the fud is that we we make this a priority don't we the aviation industry and flight emissions and it's it's something like two percent of global emissions um and comes from a tiny tiny number of people in reality globally so the impacts that we that is had on that 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 number of people is actually quite low if we made significant changes but yeah for the uk Almost 50% of our emissions come from heat, but we don't necessarily have the same campaign against a gas boiler manufacturer <laughs> um, as we might do a an airline or, a, or an airport. So I think there's some, yeah, ca- if, when we start counting our emissions properly, we need to understand where our, where, where the big wins are going to come from um, and what the big challenges are. You know, I keep, I keep hearing that and I think I'm going to push back a bit on that because yes, it's 2%, but it's not 2%. That's 2% from the airlines themselves, that doesn't include any of the ancillary things like bringing the um, aviation fuel to the airport, uh, all that sort of stuff. And it's growing at 4% a year, which means in 15 years it will have doubled. And um, completely lost my train of thought in the middle of that discussion there. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But you're right, you're right. I think I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is we need to forget about it, but it's it's wet. Yeah, what are our priorities in the short, medium and long term? And all of this is true. And if we're going to reduce our emissions by half by 2030, the whole system needs to change. 
So yes, yes, I'm a, I'm in agreement. <laughs> yeah, I, that's it. I think what I was going to say is the you know if you take your example. You've you've gone for all the low carbon technology at the house, but you take one flight to America, and that's completely obliterated that part of your carbon footprint for a whole year. So whilst it may only be two percent or four percent of whatever globally, and as you say, heating is the bigger the bigger part for an individual. A given flight can be completely destructive in terms of their individual carbon footprint. So I think that's why there's a lot of focus on it. Now, interesting, because I saw a tweet this morning that basically said, petrol pumps, gas and electricity bills should all carry warnings about fossil fuel impacts. And I also saw a similar one that said, should we actually still be advertising uh, airlines? Because they, they reckon that you know, business is improving and it's a necessary thing that, that that we need to allow people to to like yourself to go and visit family in, in America. So if if the need is there, why do they have to advertise? I agree. It's the it's the kind of tobacco argument, isn't it? Is yeah. is yeah, banning tobacco advertising probably had a really good impact on, on our health as a society. And so yeah, do we need to be able and I think one of these things is is how do we communicate with the masses what the impact of everyday decisions are. So interestingly, Shell, go back to our old pals, they had this big advertising campaign, join our our Shell Plus Club and we'll offset all your emissions. And it's just unbelievable, the brass, whatever. It's just unbelievable. What are you you on about? And yeah, if you dig into that, they're they're not taking responsibility for the their own emissions in the supply chain that in in digging up this fuel in, in actually what's burnt locally and but i can imagine someone who had a a hope to reduce their emissions thinking oh i'll sign up to that that one pound a month shell plus whatever it is yeah definitely of course i'm going to do that but it's misleading and and yeah if there was a sign at every forecourt that says average emissions of a uk car are this we need to reduce them to this by this date don't fill up. It, that would be really challenging to a lot of people and it wouldn't go down very well, I'd, I'd imagine. But it's very interesting, definitely. I mean, there's a whole podcast topic to talk about the greenwashing by oil and gas and how they talk about the things they're going to do. But, you know, it's all stuff that will happen in the future and there's no actual timelines or uh, reporting points to say we're, you know, we're 10% there or 20% there. It's, uh, but as you say, that's completely different to. Uh, topic for a completely different podcast. Uh, final question, uh, what keeps you awake at night from a climate point of view, especially considering the area that you currently work in? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, and there's plenty that keeps me awake. But I think the answer, the short answer would be the scale of the challenge. Um, so yeah, if we, if we agree there's a climate emergency, if we agree it's a good thing to keep warming below 1.5 degrees, then the science says we need to reduce our emissions by half by 2030. And that means that the whole economy needs to change in the next eight years. And I think for many of us, that hasn't registered. We're really happy just to keep living life as we have done. There doesn't seem to be any urgency. There doesn't seem even simply a plan to move away from fossil fuels within a meaningful time frame. So, and, and yeah, I find myself thinking on policy of net zero by 2050, which actually conde- condemns the planet to disaster um, uh, because we're just happy to think 30 years away, everything will be okay. And actually, if if we need to reduce emissions by half, that means that tens of millions of gas boilers need to be taken out in the next eight years. Millions of miles driven in fossil fuel cars need to be avoided. 
that 40% of our energy that comes from, from natural gas or electricity comes from natural gas at the moment needs to be significantly reduced. This is the big challenge. The scale of the challenge is, is what is why I'm doing the work I do. It's why I've taken, taken this, this role. But I, I think my worry, my concern late at night is that we've not as a society got what needs to needs really needs to happen to take our responsibility. And it's an, it's a revolution, isn't it? It's an engineering revolution. It's a national industrial revolution. And it needs that leadership uh, nationally to, to put things in place to do it, which I don't think we have at the moment. <laughs> but well, it does raise the question of, is it feasible? Is it possible? Can we do it? If we have the right things in place, can we do it? Well, I, I guess this comes back to the food thing. Is, is, and and um, did you see the green shot prize that Prince William oversaw a couple of years ago? That was a million pound prize. I'm, I'm, I'm misremembering here, but a million pound prize to develop a new technology that will solve the climate crisis. My response to that was, we have everything we need. Um, we can replace gas boilers with heat pumps. We can install solar panels. We can, we have, a, we've had a bicycle, you know, we don't, we don't need to spend a lot of money on electric vehicle. If you've got a bike, you can get around. And, and, and so I think it's, yes, it's a big challenge. It's a technical challenge, but actually I think we have everything we need already to, to do this if we, put a concerted effort and if we all made a plan um yeah it sounds like you've made a plan for your your own emissions which mm-hmm. is fantastic and and i guess you use this podcast to help explain to others what they might might be able to do and that's what i'm tra- trying to do in 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 my non-day job is trying to help people to navigate what the steps might be but each of us need to have a plan to to, to mean that we drive that much less in a fossil car and um, that we heat without using burning something locally and i think because we have the technology now it is achievable but we yeah we need to have a plan to put that in place in the next five to ten years tom thank you very much for your time very much appreciated gary thanks for having me many thanks to tom for coming on and chatting with us i think it's clear from this discussion that there's still a way to go to ensure that everyone is heading in the same direction regarding the climate emergency as tom said there's around eight years left to halve our carbon emissions It's a difficult task that can be very challenging to accomplish, but it can be done. We just need the political will to do it and the right attitude from everyone to make it happen. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. The world's first car-powered hotel has opened its doors. Curated by writer and broadcaster Grace Dent, Hotel Hyundai in Ongar, Essex, will be completely powered through an adapter from the Hyundai Ionic 5. Here, guests will be able to relax in a luxury cabin, indulge in a local menu using sustainable ingredients sourced within Essex, and enjoy picturesque views of Epping Forest. Every electrical thing in the cabin will be powered by the vehicle-to-load adapter from the Ionic 5. As Grace herself says, it's glamping times 100. Check out the link in the show notes for photos and more detail of Hotel Hyundai. Can we see this catching on? Be nice to think it might. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. ZapMap is the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK. Use it to search for available chargers, plan electric journeys, pay for charging on participating networks, and share updates with other EV drivers. ZapMap is free to download and use, with subscription plans for enhanced features, such as using ZapMap in-car, on CarPlay, or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Musing TV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing 
to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link's in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? If you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings. That's ko-fi.com slash evmusings. And you can do just that. Takes Apple Pay too. I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want to read something on your Kindle. So, you've got Electric, is available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So, you've got Renewable, is also available on Amazon for the same 99 pence, and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them both out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review, preferably five stars, as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingCV with the words, no career path, hashtag if you know you know, nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know, he asked me what my philosophy was when it comes to life. Am I a fatalist, a Nietzschean, a Stoic? I told him I subscribed to the Japanese philosophers and he should check them out. He told me, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know much about a guy, but um, uh, it's something I've seen around on the internet for a few years. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.